Good afternoon and welcome to Thrilling Tales. This month we have two short stories by famous American authors. An exemplary Ambrose Bierce tale, The Boarded Window, involves an ill-fated marriage and an act of shocking violence in the dark of night. The Oval Portrait by Edgar Allan Poe concerns a man who spends a night in an abandoned chateau and becomes fascinated by a portrait of a beautiful young woman. And now, The Boarded Window. In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by people of the frontier, restless souls who no longer had hewn fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness and attained to that degree of prosperity which today we should call indigence. Then, impelled by some mysterious impulse of their nature, they abandoned all and pushed farther westward to encounter new perils and privations in the effort to regain the meager comforts which they had voluntarily renounced. Many of them had already forsaken that region for the remoter settlements, but among those remaining was one who had been of those first arriving. He lived alone in a house of logs, surrounded on all sides by the great forest, of whose gloom and silence he seemed a part, for no one had ever known him to smile nor speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale or barter of skins of wild animals in the river town. For not a thing did he grow upon the land, which, if needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvement. A few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees, the decayed stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that had been suffered to repair the ravage wrought by the axe. Apparently the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame, expiring in penitential ashes. The little log house with its chimney of sticks, its roof of warping, clapboards weighted with traversing poles, and its chinking of clay had a single door and directly opposite a window. The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember a time when it was not, and none knew why it was so closed, certainly not because of the occupant's dislike of light and air. For on those rare occasions when a hunter had passed that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on his doorstep, if heaven had provided sunshine for his need. I fancy there are few persons living today who ever knew the secret of that window, but I am one, as you shall see. The man's name was said to be Murlock. He was apparently 70 years old, actually about 50. Something beside years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long full beard were white, his gray lustreless eyes sunken, his face singularly seamed with wrinkles, which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure, he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden bearer. I never saw him. Those particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom also I got the man's story when I was a lad. He had known him when living nearby in that early day. One day, Murlock was found in his cabin dead. It was not a time and place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he died from natural causes, or I should have been told and should remember. I only know that with what was probably a sense of fitness of things, the body was buried near the cabin alongside the grave of his wife who had preceded him by so many years that local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter of this true story. 
excepting indeed the circumstance that many years afterward, in company with an equally intrepid spirit, I penetrated to the place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghost which every well-informed boy thereabout knew haunted the spot. But there is an earlier chapter, that supplied by my grandfather. When Murlock built his cabin and began laying sturdily about with his axe to hew out a farm, the rifle, meanwhile, his means of support, he was young, strong, and full of hope. In that eastern country whence he came, he had married, as was the fashion, a young woman in all ways worthy of his honest devotion, who shared the dangers and privations of his lot with a willing spirit and light heart. There is no known record of her name, of her charms of mind and person, tradition is silent, and the doubter is at liberty to entertain his doubt, but God forbid that I should share it. Of their affection and happiness there is abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed life. For what but the magnetism of a blessed memory could have chained that venturesome spirit to a lot like that? One day, Murlock returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fear and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbor, nor was she in condition to be left to summon help. So he set about the task of nursing her back to health. But at the end of the third day, she fell into unconsciousness and so passed away, apparently with never a gleam of returning reason. From what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When convinced she was dead, Murlock had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others which he did correctly were done over and over. His occasional failures to accomplish some simple and ordinary act filled him with astonishment like that of a drunken man who wonders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep, surprised and a little ashamed. Surely he is unkind not to weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud, I shall have to make the coffin and dig the grave, and then I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight. But now she is dead, of course, but it is all right. It must be all right somehow. Things cannot be so bad as they seem. He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilette, doing all mechanically with soulless care, and still through his consciousness ran an undersense of conviction that all was right, that he should have had her again as before and everything explained. He had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard struck. That knowledge would come later and never go. Grief is an artist of powers as various as the instruments upon which he plays his dirges for the dead, evoking from some the sharpest, shrillest notes, from others the low, grave chords that throb recurrent, like the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures it startles, some it stupefies. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all the sensibilities to a keener life to another as the blow of, of a bludgeon, which in crushing benumbs. We may conceive Murlock to have been that way affected for, and here are upon sure ground than that of conjecture. No sooner had he finished his pious work than sinking into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom, he laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his face into them. Tearless yet, and utterly weary. 
At that moment came in through the open window a long wailing sound, like the cry of a lost child in the far deeps of the darkening wood. But the man did not move. Again, and nearer than before, sounded that unearthly cry upon his failing sense. Perhaps it was a wild beast. Perhaps it was a dream, for Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, as it afterward appeared, this unfaithful watcher awoke and lifting his head from his arms intently listened. He knew not why. There in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see. He knew not what. His senses were all alert. His breath was suspended. His blood had stilled its tides as if to assist the silence. Who, what, had waked him? And where was it? Suddenly, the table shook beneath his arms, and at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he heard, a light, soft step, another, sounds as bare feet upon the floor. He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or move. Perforce he waited, waited, there in the darkness, through seeming centuries of such dread as one may know yet live to tell. He tried vainly to speak the dead woman's name, vainly to stretch forth his hand across the table to learn if she were there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then it caught something most frightful. Some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an impetus that pushed it against his breast so sharp as nearly to overthrow him. And at the same instant, he heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump that the whole house was shaken by the impact. A scuffling ensued and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe. Murlock had risen to his feet. Fear had by excess forfeited control of his faculties. He's flung his hands upon the table. Nothing was there. There is a point at which terror may turn to madness, and madness incites to action. With no definite intent, from no motive but the wayward impulse of a madman, Merlick sprang to the wall, with a little groping, seized his loaded rifle, without aim, discharged it. By the flash which lit up the room with a vivid illumination, he saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman toward the window, its teeth fixed in her throat. Then there was darkness, blacker than before, and silence. And when he returned to consciousness, the sun was high and the wood vocal with songs of birds. The body lay near the window where the beast had left it when frightened away by the flash and report of the rifle. The clothing was deranged, the hair long in disorder. The limbs lay anyhow from the throat, dreadfully lacerated, had issued a pool of blood not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon with which he had bound the wrists was broken. The hands were tightly clenched. And between the teeth was a fragment of the animal's ear. And now for the oval portrait by Edgar Allan Poe. The chateau into which my valet had ventured to make forcible entrance, rather than permit me, in my desperately wounded condition, to pass the night in the open air, was one of those piles of commingled gloom and grandeur which have so long frowned upon the Apennines, not less in fact than in the fancy of Mrs. Radcliffe. To all appearance, it had been temporarily and very lately abandoned. We established ourselves in one of the smallest and least sumptuously furnished apartments. It lay in a remote turret of the building. 
Its decorations were rich yet tattered and antique. Its walls were hung with tapestry and bedecked with manifold and multiform armorial trophies, together with an unusually great number of very spirited modern paintings in frames of rich golden arabesque. In these paintings, which depended from the walls not only in their main surfaces, but in very many nooks which the bizarre architecture of the chateau rendered necessary, in these paintings my incipient delirium, perhaps, had caused me to take deep interest so that I bade Pedro to close the heavy shutters of the room, since it was already night, to light the tongues of a tall candelabrum which stood by the head of my bed, and to throw open far and wide the fringed curtains of black velvet which enveloped the bed itself. I wished all this done that I might resign myself, if not to sleep, at least alter alternately to the contemplation of these pictures and the perusal of a small volume which had been found upon the pillow and which purported to criticize and describe them. Long, long I read and devoutly, devoutly I gazed. Rapidly and gloriously the hours flew by and the deep midnight came. The position of the candelabrum displeased me and outreaching my hand with difficulty, rather than disturb my slumbering valet, I placed it so to throw its rays more fully upon the book. But the action produced an effect altogether unanticipated. The rays of the numerous candles, for there were many, now fell within a niche of the room, which had hitherto been thrown into deep shade by one of the bedposts. I thus saw in vivid light a picture all unnoticed before. It was the portrait of a young girl, just ripening into womanhood. I glanced at the painting hurriedly and then closed my eyes. But why I did this was not at first apparent, even to my own perception. But while my lids remained thus shut, I ran over in my mind my reason for so shutting them. It was an impulsive movement to give time for thought, to make sure that my vision had not deceived me, to calm and subdue my fancy for a more sober and more certain gaze. In a very few moments, I again looked fixedly at the painting. That I now saw aright, I could not and would not doubt. For the first flashing of the candles upon that canvas had seemed to dissipate the dreamy stupor which was stealing over my senses and to startle me at once into waking life. The portrait, I have already said, was that of a young girl. It was a mere head and shoulders, done once technically termed a vignette manner, much in the style of the favorite heads of Sully. The arms, the bosom, and even the ends of the radiant hair melted imperceptibly into the vague yet deep shadow which formed the background of the whole. The frame was oval, richly gilded, and filigreed in moresque. As a thing of art, nothing could be more admirable than the painting itself. But it could have been neither the execution of the work nor the immortal beauty of the countenance which had so suddenly and so vehemently moved me. Least of all, could it have been that my fancy, shaken from its half slumber, had mistaken the head for that of a living person. I saw at once that the peculiarities of the design, of the vignetting, of the frame, must have instantly dispelled such idea, must have prevented even its momentary entertainment. Thinking earnestly upon these points, I remained for an hour, perhaps, half sitting, half reclining, with my vision riveted upon the portrait.
At length, satisfied with the true secret of its effect, I fell back within the bed. I had found the spell of the picture in an absolute lifelikeness of expression, which at first startling, finally confounded, subdued, and appalled me. With deep and reverent awe, I replaced the candelabrum in its former position. The cause of my deep agitation being thus shut from view, I sought eagerly the volume which discussed the paintings and their histories. Turning to the number which designated the oval portrait, I there read the vague and quaint words which follow. She was a maiden of rarest beauty and not more lovely than full of glee. An evil was the hour when she saw and loved and wedded the painter. He, passionate, studious, austere, and have already a bride in his art. She, a maiden of rarest beauty, and not more lovely than full of glee, all light and smiles and frolicsome as the young fawn, loving and cherishing all things, hating only the art which was her rival dreading only the palette and brushes and other untoward instruments which deprived her of the countenance of her lover. It was thus a terrible thing for this lady to hear the painter speak of his desire to portray even his young bride. But she was humble and obedient and sat meekly for many weeks in the dark, high turreted chamber where the light dripped upon the pale canvas only from overhead. But he, the painter, took glory in his work, which went on from hour to hour and from day to day. And B was a passionate and wild and moody man who became lost in reveries, so that he would not see the light which fell so ghastly in that lone turret, withered the health and spirits of his bride, who pined visibly to all but him. Yet she smiled on and still on, uncomplaining, because she saw that the painter, who had high renown, took a fervid and burning pleasure in his task, and wrought day and night to depict her who so loved him, yet who grew daily more dispirited and weaker. And in sooth, some who beheld the portrait spoke of its resemblance in low words, as of a mighty marvel, and a proof not less of the power of the painter than of his deep love for her, whom he depicted so surpassingly well. But at length, as the labor drew nearer to its conclusion, there were admitted none into the turret, for the painter had grown wild with the ardor of his work and turned his eyes from canvas merely even to regard the countenance of his wife and he would not see that the tints which he spread upon the canvas were drawn from the cheeks of her who sat beside him. And when many weeks bad passed and little remained to do, save one brush upon the mouth and one tint upon the eye, the spirit of the lady again flickered up as the flame within the socket of the lamp. And then the brush was given, and then the tint was placed. And for one moment, the painter stood entranced before the work, which he had wrought, but in the next, while he gazed, he grew tremulous and very pallid, and aghast and crying with a loud voice, this is indeed life itself, turned suddenly to regard his beloved. She was dead.